The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. No my hockey mai ki the fold e mihine ko Duncan Greer talking wa. My guest this week is James Frankham, who is publisher of New Zealand Geographic magazine and I think one of the, the most sort of principled and kind of original intellects in, in New Zealand journalism and publishing. Uh, New Zealand Geographic has been around over 30 years. It is very much a separate and independent entity from National Geographic, which it is sometimes confused. It, it has a, a very kind of broad and, and quite serious scope, I suppose. It covers the New Zealand realm, which stretches from the Antarctic up to the Pacific uh, and, and looks at the kind of sort of socio-political uh, relationship with the environment and, and the sort of stories which fall out of that. It's a print publication. It's a digital publication. It has it, it is accessible by nearly 800,000 New Zealand uh, school pupils. It's quite activist in its own way. You know, uh, James describes a court case uh, to which New Zealand Geographic was party, uh, which where it took the government to, to court and won. It, it does really serious, beautifully edited and crafted, long-form journalism. It is by far the best repository of photojournalism in the country. As a result of all that, it wins every award going. It's It's kind of... The, the Magazine of the Year uh, Award uh, at both the MPA Awards and the NPA uh, Awards, the Voyages, is basically a procession. It tends to always be, in recent years, New Zealand Geographic, and that's kind of hard to argue when you engage with it. It's just a really, really um, beautifully... It, it, it's made with, with a level of care and love that is... It is it's pretty world-class, to be honest. Um, it's currently edited by Catherine Wolfe, who was uh, the spin-off books editor. We miss her terribly, but we're also just so proud to see her go on to uh, work on that publication. You know, that, that's one of the tiny handful of, of truly great jobs in, in journalism, and, and we're, we're very happy to see her do it. But, um, but yeah, J- James has been a friend of the publication for a very long time. We worked alongside one another, literally shared an office um, in Bredemart when we were starting out. Uh, Leonie Hayden was then editor of Mana Magazine, which was uh, a sort of sibling publication of NZGO, um, and eventually came off to 
to start the spin-off Atia. So there are there are multiple connections between our organizations. But but James has just been someone I've ad- admired hugely over the years for um, just how principled he is and the the extreme levels of care and dedication that are manifest in, in his product and and also a lot of the kind of innovations um, around you know everything from the revenue side to kind of conceptions of what a magazine can and should be that are present in New Zealand Geographic. So I've wanted to have him on the fold for a very long time. I'm really thrilled to have him on now and it is quite, you know, poignant timing in that uh, he just put out uh, an issue that managed to scramble in a, a sort of a photo essay and a piece of journalism about uh, the the impact of Cyclone Gabriel and um that as a story is just right dead center of the kind of uh, the kind of thing which which New Zealand Geographic does better than anyone. So this is James Frankham on the fold. Dinakwe, James, and welcome to the fold. G'day. thanks. I wanted to start just with the issue that most recently went to press because. I haven't actually seen it. The, the physical copy hasn't turned up in my mailbox just yet, but I did see that you managed to get Brett Phibbs out on location with some pretty stunning and very freaky images from from the aftermath of Cyclone Gabriel. Do you want to just tell me about uh, about the issue and and particularly about, about how you sort of scrambled to make that happen? Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the great joys and great difficulties of publishing a bi-monthly magazine is that you're always a long way behind the news cycle and sometimes a long way sort of ahead of it in terms of um, what you think you should be reporting on. And that was definitely the case as we were going to press. Um, basically the first rain event in Auckland went through on January 27th or whatever and, and uh, Brett was out stringing for other organisations. Um, he's a terrific photojournalist and we've worked with him a lot on a number of different projects and um, we asked him to set aside some images uh, for Geographic as he was also shooting for the Herald and others. Um, so we managed to pick up that okay and then um, all hell broke loose in Hawke's Bay as well. And so we ended up kind of scrambling right on press deadline to put together some kind of coherent response. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, Catherine Wolf, who is editing Geographic at the moment, uh, is from Hawke's Bay herself, and so she watched her own sort of family farm go underwater and, and um, see pictures of her neighbours' properties and places that she loved um, sort of turn up the toes or get covered in silt. And uh, so she had a sort of a background there and managed to call John Copeland as well, who's a photojournalist um, down that way, and uh, I think he I think he shoots for stuff. And so he also set aside some frames for us, and we're communicating with him three or four times a day um, across that period and then put something into the latest issue that, you know, we needed to think in terms of the text about what the conversation would be in two weeks' time um, by the time it actually came out on the newsstand because it doesn't come out till next Monday. So um, we're always trying to work ahead of where we want to be or where we are, I guess. And, um, yeah, so it's just kind of a classic example. Other times uh, we get a solid six weeks to pull something together yeah, so, but we don't pretend to be a daily news title. You know, we we want to be a slower, uh, more coherent response to the happenings of the world. Yeah. So, can we let's talk a bit about that that scope because I think for your 
subscribers and for anyone who's had any kind of sustained contact with the publication, it's quite manifest what it's about. But I think, you know, in the same way that people can kind of confuse it with National Geographic, which I'm sure is something you, you love to talk about. Yeah, big yellow, yeah. <laughs> um, there's also probably some aspect of of the 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 breadth of its scope, breadth and depth of its scope that that maybe people don't quite understand. And I think, you know, an event like Gabriel um, and like a number of increasingly frequently happening events mm. we've had over the past few years really do speak to the core purpose of the magazine. So just just give me a sense of what, of what, of what it's about. Yeah, I mean, I guess when many people, many people think about New Zealand Geographic, they immediately liken it to National Geographic and they think it's a magazine about sea lions and tree ferns and, and that's about it, you know. Uh, but more than half of our coverage is, is social or sort of wider enviro-social, I suppose, in terms of... Um, the area of interest um, and acknowledging this massive dependency between environment and society. If if the environment is broken, society is broken by default. You know, so uh, we can't have one thing working and not the other. Um, so there's no sort of real trade-off. That idea is a bit of a fallacy in terms of trying to um, exchange dollars for environmental. Um, uh, sort of cohesion, I suppose. Uh, in terms of our um, remit, we're most interested in the New Zealand realm, which is obviously mainland New Zealand, but also the offshore islands, also the Antarctic dependency, the subantarctic islands, and then all the way up to our dependencies and states and free association in the Pacific, which is Nui and Tokelau and, and the Cook Islands. Um, that's the geographic scope. And then thereafter, actually, um, everything else is just about treatment and we hope and we want to have a distinctive treatment on on a story. So generally it's a long-form feature is what we're sort of known for and very visually led. Um, most of the time we have photographers on the ground for just as long as we have a um, journalist and we're still commissioning a lot of original photojournalism in New Zealand. Um and yeah, and then it's a creative treatment of reality, I suppose. So that sort of long form, almost uh, American style school of journalism, um, more so than a sort of a, a UK style. Do you, f I mean, the, the irony is you just described the most enormous patch <laughs> uh, and, and formidable scope and yet, you know, we, we used to be neighbours uh, in uh, down down at Bridamine, and I've seen the scale of the team that produces it, and it's, there's something that doesn't quite make sense, but that's probably why you, as before we came on, we're talking about being somewhat tired. Um, but yeah, just just to tell me about how you take it. What is it? What is a very small full time team and create something of such sort of scope and substance? Yeah, I don't know how to answer that very well because it seems like a bit of a miracle every time it um, goes to press or every time it goes live on the website. Um, we we have about two and a half employees. One of them is the subscription manager and one of them is me and, <laughs> and another one is the editor. Um, above and beyond that, there's a lot of really hardworking and seriously committed uh, contributors um, being you know, feature writers and, and photojournalists. Um, and they do the grunt work, really. We're just sort of 
um, conductors of an orchestra, I suppose, standing at the front trying to make things go left or right and um, pulling together and stirring the pot, I suppose, to mix metaphors and just trying to make sure things adhere to the kind of treatment that we know and love, um, something that is creative and something that is personal um, and something that's Kiwi and its and its response. And I think having a small team is sort of part of that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, basically we, we hustle essentially, uh, you know, and we, we pull together a, um, a lot from a little Um and and it's not you know it's it's not hard all hard work it's really really enjoyable it's good fun and um, press days which can be uh, the biggest hardest days of you know any two month cycle are, are also sometimes the most fun you know because you're really seeing the thing take shape in front of your eyes and it it still excites me a lot you know and 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 still pulling these features together and making these editorial decisions um, with the editor is is really good fun. In terms of that. Yeah, you know, sort of building something that you know has uh, has the texture and feel of the kind of great American journalism with such a small team, without having staff writers, uh, you know, in the same way that you know, like the Atlantic or or any of the kind of great American publications would have. How would you sort of rate the sort of talent availability um, and kind of creation on that side over the because you've been involved with the magazine for quite some time and we've seen people come mm. and go and, and what's available to you evolve over time. Oh, look, I think it's the same um, as everything else in New Zealand. I think the the best um, performing New Zealanders are up there with the best in the world um, for anything pretty much, from plumbing to songwriting <laughs> to um, feature writing and photojournalism. You know, um, Richie, who does a lot of, uh, Richard Robinson, who does a lot of photography for us, he he was just over winning a um, a category award for the Natural History Photographer of the Year, you know, international award. Uh, you know, Kate Evans does a lot of writing for us, and also you know writes for BBC and the Guardian and 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 um, Hogan and others. You know, it, it's um, exceptionally talented people and world class. Um, the real trick is how you pay them <laughs> at sort of world class rates. Um, and that's considerably harder. Um, I mean, we still we do our best there, and I, mean, I imagine it's something that the spin-off is up against as well. You know, how do you um, make it work financially? You know, how do you put together a team that is of this calibre and make sure they get rewarded on the same level as they can get rewarded when they're working for the Atlantic or something? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think also just given that the the extent, and we'll probably talk about this shortly. The the way that the digital uh, economy for for journalism has evolved and people's expectations for quality and 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 willingness to pay in an online environment versus versus a print environment, because you've spent actually, you know, the 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 digital product has as much of a kind of has the same kind of qualities as the print product, but. You know, in, in our correspondence, you expressed some scepticism about, you know, how the the way that digital functions from a financial perspective versus the print publication. Do you want to talk about your sort of struggles? Yeah, there? I feel like it. I feel like it changes every fifteen minutes, though. Eh? Um, it's just so turbulent. 
out there in the, in the digital sphere. I mean, it's pretty hard in, in print as well, but it's particularly turbulent in digital. And the way that you can make a dollar off it one week is different from the next week and you get tooled up and organized um, following a particular path and then the algorithm changes and you're stumped. And you know that as well as I do. And so you try and control as many of your channels as you possibly can or, or try and have as great a level of ownership um, of that as you can. Um, but even then, you know, the the tech giants sometimes, you know, somehow somehow win, you know. And um, so, yeah, it's a struggle. We've had, we put all um, the entire archive of Geographic up online and um, that's available as a sort of institutional subscription for libraries and schools. And it's very popular. You know, we have 779,000 school students all subscribe to the um to the digital archive, which we hope has a kind of a timeless quality to it. Um, we put a lot of effort into the uh, treatment of the digital stories to make sure they feel as luxurious and lush and easy to read and um, and and sort of high value in terms of those production values as, as the print product. Um, but then again, you know, you do a trial subscription for one dollar, and <laughs> and uh, then it's eight dollars fifty every two months, and you you know you kind of cross your fingers and hope that people come back for a for a second month, um, and it costs them fifty bucks a year, but still people are, are rubbing their chins and wondering, oh, you know, do you do they put in their eight dollars fifty this two month cycle or not? And you know, so how you make that paywall work for you? I mean, we're pretty committed to the reader revenue model. Um, we committed that in 2016 when we basically put up the renewed version of the site and built our paywall um, and we're committed to the subscription model as well which has um, been quite good for magazines overall I mean typically I mean I, I guess about 10 years ago magazines were one of the very few things in the world that you could subscribe to and you paid money in advance for a whole year's worth of uh, media product from a media entity, which seems daft <laughs> for any um, basic consumer sort of relationship. But then Netflix came along and, and you know all of the other streaming services and people got very used to subscribing to things. So that has got a lot easier. So some of those things have, have become easier. Some of them have become harder. Um, is reader revenue going to be the only sort of way to do it in the future? Probably not, um, but how else do you do it? You know, ads don't have never really worked for us. Um, uh, scale has never really worked for us, or particularly for me. Um, and and the tech giants, you realise after a while, give you all this stuff, but are not really your friends. And it, it's um, it's hard out there, yeah. And we haven't cracked it. I'll be the first to admit it. I mean, for, I think for at least from a product perspective, I have to disagree with you. Well, what, but I think also, as you suggest, the you know a lot of the environments you operate in, you just don't have a huge amount of influence over. One of the most graphic illustrations of that was the, um, which which we covered and were impacted by, but but certainly not nearly so. We weren't nearly so close to it as you were, which was the collapse of Bauer, the you know the the biggest publisher of consumer magazines in New Zealand uh, in 2020. Do you want to just talk about that event and, and how that impacted the the magazine industry more broadly? Because you've got quite a big relationship with, you know, magazine publishing uh, 
probably outsized versus the, the kind of staff of the magazine. Yeah, it was the Zoom of doom where you know, Brendan sat on the other side in Sydney and fired about, what was it, 200 staff in Auckland um, in one Zoom call. Um, I wasn't there, of course, unfortunately, uh, and nobody had really seen it coming. It took everyone by surprise, and I think, to be fair, it even took Brendan by surprise over in Sydney. Um, they just pulled the pin somewhere in Germany. Um, yeah, it was a shockwave uh, for magazine publishing in New Zealand, that's for sure. Um, they had made a short and feeble attempt to influence government uh, around that. It came at the same time as magazines were banned in supermarkets, and yet you were still allowed to buy fish bait. It was one of these strange things that happened where the government got just about everything right, but a, a whole lot of tiny things wrong in terms of the COVID immediate COVID response. Um, but what happened at the end of the day is that um, the magazine market fragmented enormously. Some of those magazines went on to get picked up by other publishers. Some of them died overnight. Uh, there were a lot of freelancers that really had to hold their breath for a very, very long time. And um, naturally, we supported them where we could, but we are still just one bi-monthly magazine. And uh, one of the sort of unintended consequences of that essentially was that a lot of um, those writers that had been struggling for some time, and photojournalists, I might say, uh, ended up going to commercial jobs or, or working for PR or, or jumping the fence one which way or the other and uh, and left the magazine and media industry altogether. And it was very obvious right at that moment that the media industry needs all of the media players were really not in competition with each other. We need um, everybody around to offer enough employment for a diversity of writers and a whole sort of choir of um, contributors to be um, writing and photographing for New Zealand media outlets. And I think that was probably the biggest outcome of the Bauer uh, saga. Um, but it was also another lesson um, in terms of the local ownership or or not of media and uh, an international organisation could dust their hands and walk away without any um, feeling whatsoever um, for the people that were left behind, either the audiences or the contributors or the um, or the staff. And um, you know, I sit on, I sat on the uh, magazine publishers association at that time, and I, I still do now. And uh, it was a you know it was a difficult time, and it was definitely a time where. You wanted everybody in the room and contributing and talking and helping, um, not people just pulling the pin and walking away. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. In terms of that, that sense of being, you know, you you live here. You you own the publication, uh, and the that sense of being a a pub a publication that can't go anywhere else. And you are you know your it's your your life your livelihood. 
you know, versus the, you know, basically this was a line on a spreadsheet in Germany, which enabled some historically important publications just to kind of vanish, some never to return. You know, how, how important, how, you know, is that independence and that ability to do some, you know, you've, you've taken you know, the government to court. There's, there's some, some things which you do while running the magazine, and maybe you could talk about some of them, which are highly unconventional for a publisher, to say the least. Yeah, some of them are not very lucrative either, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, like you say, I'm committed to New Zealand. It's a family organisation, a family um, company, and you do things for reasons that are not always commercial and, and very often not commercial, you know. Um, and, you know, sometimes I also help myself to the plum editorial assignments too, you know. <laughs> um, it's one of the great joys of it. Don't do it very often, mind you. But, um, yeah, I, I think being local is important and I think that readers feel it somehow um, because there's a trajectory to the magazine, there's a trajectory to the publishing company, there's, I guess, a a method in the madness in terms of what we do next and why we do it and um, all of that is born from um, an editorial New Zealand context and a personal New Zealand context as well. And so um, we care deeply about um, what we produce, so it's not just the writers who care about it; it's the it's the organisation itself. Fundamentally, um, we partner with other local organisations on a on a very local basis too. And you know, I've got kids in schools just like everyone else, and I want to see them, you know, using seeing the best resources and the most relevant kind of local context present within the resources that they look at. And so that's really important for us. As suppliers to the Ministry of Education, we're also suppliers to our own kids. Um, it's important for us in terms of living in this environment, and um, you know, particularly for me, being really connected to um, the sea and the ocean estate, and uh, caring about that, and that's reflected in the content that we produce as well, because we, you know, want to live and exist in a healthy environment and a healthy ocean. Uh, um, we want to take our kids walking in, in forests that are intact and not not just everything being tarnished by um, by utilitarian values, I suppose. Um, and that sounds ideological, and I guess it is. <laughs> and I don't make any apology for that, you know. Well, on some some level, what you describe also has a you know kind of feels like it it marries up quite quite well to like a Tiao Māori lens, a kind of kaitiakitanga, and uh, you, you've taken on a, a Māori editor uh, as part of the PIJF, and suddenly there's a real a conversation about the relationship between people uh, and the whenua and the, um, you know, the broader environment that feels very present in the publication. So t- tell me about how that sort of evolved in, in recent years. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm really happy that it feels present in the in the publication. Um you know, Geographic's been around for 33 years and I think there's always been a willingness and a desire to get it right in terms of uh, reporting on Ta'a Māori um, and certainly reporting from a Ta'a Māori perspective um, and right from the earliest days, you know, when it was established in 1989, there were Māori writers that were chosen for Māori stories. Um, 
but we haven't done it well. And you look back over that time and there are moments where you're reading the copy and you, you know, you feel your skin crawl a little bit, you know, um, and even the editors of the day would probably look back with the same uh, and reflect on it in the same way. Um, and so, you know, we can always do better. And um, last year we had an opportunity to bring on board uh, Nick Lowe, who's a, well, first and foremost, he's an incredibly talented writer and um, editor from a literary background. Uh, he's Kaitahu um, uh, affiliation um, and uh, he has been really terrific in terms of uh, help steering the waka. Um, we, when we made this pitch, it was funded through um, the Public Interest Journalism Fund, and we made the pitch to New Zealand on air, and we said that um, a double-hulled waka is is uh, more stable and and faster. And um, Polynesians have known that for some time, but we're just getting to grips with it as Pakeha and. Uh, at the double hulled waka for New Zealand Geographic should definitely be both treaty partners as the hulls of that waka and and be more stable and, and um, perform better as a result. And I think that's been true. And it, it's really, um, it's not without its challenges, of course. You know, when you try and turn that corner, when you try and make um, legitimate efforts to improve uh, the penetration of Māori into your organisation, it has to happen at every level. It has to be revolutionary. Um, and it, it's hard mainly from a plain old supply and demand perspective. There are only so many Māori journalists and there are only so many Māori uh, editors. And um, that is an indictment upon the media industry in general, you know, for, for decades and decades. Um and it's not going to change overnight. Uh, and it will require more than just, you know, us or the spin-off or whatever, um, making inroads there and making effort. You know, it requires the whole industry to, to change and to kind of fill that pipe. Um, and we've seen that with Tirito and um, other cadetship sort of schemes that have um, are bringing more Māori, more Pacific Islanders, more Asian uh, influence into uh, the media sphere um, to tell those stories and to support reflect New Zealand as it is rather than um, just as what we think it is to be, you know. I mean, that also, like, I mean, I think what you, you said there is also speaks to, you know, you've and you've already alluded to it a bit, but this idea of a, um, of a publication that is unapologetically political in some respects that not only covers... You know, stories, I think, for example, about there was a fantastic feature, um, I think it was Naomi Arnold wrote about the Dome Valley fire. And um, and there is the there is the event and then there is the the kind of atmosphere which created the event, uh, uh, you know. And so do you and do you want to just talk, I guess, about uh, that that perspective, you know, about this this court case that you, you know, for example, maybe use that court case with the Ministry of Fisheries as an example of the publication sort of leaping a fence or two of its own in terms of where it considers a, a natural boundary to exist? Yeah, I had an argument about this just the other day with um, an editor of a, another media organisation um, who said that she was very much in the free speech brigade. Um, and I think free speech has got a lot of terrific values and, and I will argue for it at every point. 
but I would make a number of caveats and um, those caveats are that free speech hasn't really been helpful for society in terms of how it's treated in an environment where some people have megaphones and and others don't um, or an environment where um, like on social media where there would just be huge pylons or where you end up with a filter bubble and, and people are only speaking with their own within their own community or where there's active people participating in disinformation campaigns and in those cases I don't I think free speech becomes harder to defend um, so in a I guess about 2020, we sat down and decided, um, as Rebecca White, uh, and I, who was editor at the time, um, sat down and decided that, you know, actually around when we're reporting on COVID, when we're reporting on climate, when we're reporting on um, racism or equality or the marine environment or biodiversity, I think that was <laughs> about it, actually, um, on those subjects, um, uh, we're going to take a committed stance and that's going to be quite different from when we report on, I don't know, inflation, where we'd be quite happy to court numerous opinions because the outcomes of those opinions aren't dangerous. Um, if you um, try to provide equal column inches on something to do with climate, for instance, um, there are some dangerous um, opinions that can be forwarded and picked up and uh, amplified, and we will have no part of that. So... Yes, we've um, we've taken a committed stance there, um, and that's followed through to uh, scientific research. We um, have commissioned work. We've done work ourselves. We have an in-house scientist um, working in um, in the marine field, um, and as a result of some of that work, we've been following um, the marine space very, very closely in terms of um, marine policy and fisheries policy, where New Zealand lags horribly behind the rest of the world. Um, and we're doing that because 93% of New Zealand is salt water. Um, we've got a, the fourth largest marine estate in all the world. We're a marine superpower and we're not treating that with the kind of responsibility that it should have. So there was one particularly, um, well, a number of fairly awful um, fisheries decisions, but all of them came back to one common value and that was that the Minister of Fisheries was... Uh, not taking um, the entire ecosystem into account uh, when considering uh, the quota on single species. And the Fisheries Act uh, required him to, um, in this case David Parker, to take um, all of the um, ecosystem into account when making these fisheries decisions. And uh, the example that we chose was the Cray 1 decision where he decided to... Um, uh, take a very small cut on on the crayfish quota despite all scientific evidence to the contrary um, suggesting that the ecosystem would suffer uh, that it would see the collapse of um, our reefs up in Northland and we got together with the Environmental Law Initiative uh, and another number of other players including iwi up in Northland and took the case to the High Court and, and won against the Minister and he had to remake that fisheries decision and, and take the environment into consideration um, when making commercial decisions for private fishing companies. And I think that um, that's sort of the micro, but you can take that to the macro. We see that all over New Zealand at the moment. We see um, the the commons being divvied up um, for the benefit of um, private organisations or 
or publicly listed um, commercial organisations and uh, all New Zealanders are losing out or all New Zealanders need to pay the environmental cost of those commercial activities. And that could be said of forestry when you have uh, billions of tonnes of forestry slash run down um, the Esk River and, and take out bridges and things like it's just happened in, in Hawke's Bay or in um, uh, Takamaru Bay. And um, it, it happens when uh, the, envi- the marine environment gets depleted of predators and, and um, kind of um, overrun it and destroy the reefs. And it it, um, it happens the same with, with climate when some organisations are allowed or some um, polluters are allowed to emit whatever they like um, without being tested on that and the rest of New Zealand needs to um, pay the environmental cost of it and we're paying the environmental cost of that now. Same with, you know, runoff into our rivers and it just happens over and over and over again and it's frustrating when nobody sees the writing on the wall here um, and we feel like we're reporting on that same stuff again and again and again and it's pretty much our bread and butter, you know, it's always for geographic the traditional feature is just here is uh, the environment and here is how we're utilising it. Here are the policy settings and here are the consequences. Are you happy with this picture? You know, We never make the judgment call, but it's always you know, where would you put your policy? Where would you personally have your settings? You know, Do you want a dollar now or do you want your kids to swim at the beach next week? You know. We're quite happy if people choose the economy over the environment, but people need to choose. They need to be active in that decision making. They need to be thoughtful when they're doing it, you know. And um, that's all we're doing as publishers: is just wanting to hold up this mirror and say, you know, are you happy with this picture? You know, that's a pretty extraordinary kind of manifesto to to end on. And uh, if that sounds profound to you, then. You should definitely be seeking out NZ Geographic if you don't already. Uh, James, thanks so much for, for coming up here. And, uh, yeah, I just couldn't admire more your the effort you and your, your staff and contributors put into that publication. Yeah, thanks, Doug. It's a pleasure. Kia ora e te iwi. Te Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.